A warning for listeners. This episode deals with the brutal murder of a 13-year-old boy. You are listening to Devils in Dirtbags, Season 1, Child Molesting Priest, Episode 13, In Memory of Danny. This is the season finale of Child Molesting Priests, and I want to thank you, dear listener, for making it to episode 13. I know the many hours of stories have been sorted and oftentimes difficult to stomach, so thanks for sticking around to hear the whole damn mess. If you haven't yet done so, please rate and review and subscribe to Devils and Dirtbags wherever you download, and I'd also appreciate it if you spread the word on social media and in real life and recommend this podcast to your pals and family members who value investigative reporting. Stay tuned at the end of this episode to learn what's in store for Season 2. I'm going to post a sworn affidavit in this episode's show notes. The document was written in 2003 by Maurice de Montigny, a longtime devout lay leader of St. Catherine's. De Montigny was also a confidant of Bishop Christopher Weldon and other diocesan bigwigs. The affidavit alleges that as early as 1968, church officials knew Richard Levine was molesting altar boys. According to the affidavit, the pastor of St. Catherine's, Father Thomas Griffin, was noticeably worried about the number of children possibly victimized by Levine. The affidavit claims that in 1968, four years before Danny Croto's murder, and almost 25 years before Richard Levine was arrested on child rape charges, Father Griffin came to De Montigny in an agitated state. Here's a paragraph from the affidavit where De Montigny quotes the pastor several times. It begins, Father Griffin told me he needed my help for a serious and grave matter and asked our conversation be held in the strictest confidence. He told me that, quote, someone in the parish had come to him with a complaint on Father Levine that involved their sons and they could not press charges with the police, end quote. He inquired as to whether one of my young nephews, who also attended St. Catherine's, was also having, quote, a problem, end quote. He further told me that the family did not want to go to the police and that he wanted to know, quote, how widespread the problem was and who and how many of the boys in the parish were involved, end quote. Father Griffin was very upset and breathing hard. He was being careful with his words. I understood him to be confiding in me that the family had accused Richard Levine of molesting their child, and he suspected that other boys may have been molested as well. End of paragraph. De Montigny went on to explain that he assumed Father Griffin, one of Bishop Weldon's inner circle, told Weldon about the trouble with Levine in 1968. The affidavit also insists that by 1972, without a doubt, the bishop and his gang knew about multiple accusations against Levine 
because of the investigation of Danny Croto's murder. In fact, De Montigny said that during the investigation, he was part of a small group of Springfield Catholics passing information from court and police sources about Levine to diocesan higher-ups, presumably all the way to Bishop Weldon. The De Montigny affidavit is further confirmation of what we learned in Episode 1, that church officials knew early on of Levine's sins and crimes. And, as I previously noted, Lieutenant James Fitzgibbons, the Massachusetts State Police detective, had several sit-downs with diocesan bureaucrats in which he detailed accusations that Levine had molested altar boys and was the sole suspect in Danny's murder. As late as the year 2000, though, the church continued to deny knowledge of Levine's evil doing during the 1960s and 1970s, claiming only to learn of Levine's sins when he was arrested in 1992 for child rape. Eventually, the diocese backpedaled and pivoted. It admitted that, in 1986, then-Chancellor Thomas Dupre had sent Levine for a psych eval after a molestation complaint. Levine, allegedly, passed with flying colors and returned to his position as pastor of three rural churches. De Montigny's conscience compelled him to write this affidavit in 2003. He was angered by the diocese's request for a judge to dismiss several charges of priestly abuse that occurred prior to 1971. This was the same court case that, back in episode 10, convinced Father James Scahill to reveal how Bishop Dupre bragged about Bishop Weldon's secret files being destroyed. This affidavit, though, wasn't the first time de Montigny accused the diocese of covering up sex crimes against children. In the mid-1990s, he said the same in a statement for a lawsuit against Levine that would be settled out of court by Bishop John Marshall. De Montigny wrote that statement on behalf of his nephew, yet another altar boy, molested by Levine. This is probably a good time to remember what Danny Croto's youngest sister, Kat, said in the last episode. I don't think that we should torture ourselves thinking that if someone had just spoken up that the course of this life would have been changed and Danny would have possibly lived back then, I, I don't necessarily think that anybody would have acted on it. I think if two or three people came forward and, and um, if they tried to act on it, I think somebody in the power team would have said, not going to happen. She's right, of course. All signs point towards Bishop Christopher Weldon as the one who, for over a quarter century, shut down the complaint process. Weldon, as we now know, kept extensive secret files on bad priests and was never held responsible, morally, publicly, or legally, for protecting Levine and hiding the sins and crimes of many other priests under his command. Back in the 1970s, on a couple of occasions, I served as an altar boy for Weldon when the bishop celebrated Mass at St. Matthew's. Granted, I was a young kid, but I remember this much. The dude was a real prick. Decades later, I asked a source deep within diocesan headquarters how Weldon had been viewed by the rank-and-file chancery employees. Quote, a nasty man and a jerk. No judgment ever happened at least here on Earth, 
as the child-molesting Bishop Weldon went to his grave in 1982. In the public's eye, he was a hero, eulogized as a great man and leader. He built many new churches in western Massachusetts, plus led construction on a couple hospitals, several cemeteries, and his pride and joy, my alma mater, Cathedral High School, which God destroyed via a rare New England tornado in 2012. To this day, despite plenty of evidence proving he and his underlings destroyed records and allegedly molested children, the diocese continues to protect Weldon's legacy. At least two individuals have come forward claiming Weldon sexually abused them as young boys. First, back in 2005, a Cathedral High grad, serving a 60-year prison sentence in Texas, reportedly for murdering a businessman, filed a civil lawsuit against the diocese alleging that Weldon and two other priests sexually molested him as a young altar boy. The church denied the claims, and the suit was eventually dismissed. Flash forward a dozen years to 2018, and another man came forward, this time to the Diocesan Misconduct Commission, and made a similar allegation. Back in the 1960s, the man said, when he was an altar boy, Weldon raped him, and then introduced the boy to two other priests who also sexually assaulted him. Soon after the man's private testimony to the Misconduct Commission, the diocese publicly denied the man had made an allegation against Weldon. The diocese did, however, admit the man's allegations about the other two priests were legitimate. Luckily, a defector from the Misconduct Commission, plus other witnesses to the victim's tearful testimony, came forward, contradicting the church's further attempt at a cover-up. Finally, in the summer of 2019, Walden's alleged victim had the chance to meet with the current bishop, Mitchell Rosansky. According to reports, the meeting lasted two hours, and the man made sure the bishop understood that his holy predecessor raped him several times back in the 1960s. As of this recording, in February 2020, the diocese still hasn't placed Weldon on the credibly accused list, and the Catholic Rehab Hospital on Carew Street in Springfield still bears Weldon's name. The Diocese of Springfield has ignored three requests by me for interviews. Also, I made an in-person visit to diocesan headquarters and had a conversation with the diocesan spokesman. I explained the podcast and what I discovered about X, Levine, and other child molesters. I asked for additional information about Bishop Weldon, Dupre, and other priests suspected of crimes against children. The spokesman said he'd get back to me. He didn't, and he ignored follow-up emails and phone messages. There are countless unknowns in this sin-filled saga because of the secrecy and cover-ups. Soon, the child-molesting priest of Springfield, Mass., will be considered ancient history and forgotten by most. There are so many more sad tales of victims of depraved Springfield clergy that I haven't even mentioned during this season of Devils and Dirtbags. I've already shared more than enough sorrowful stories to prove the Diocese of Springfield was infested by a cabal of molesters. Besides, many of those other cases of child-molesting priests were settled before any civil trial, including several cases where evil clergy allegedly groomed shared 
and swapped victims. Those out-of-court settlements came with non-disclosure agreements, which means most details were kept away from police, district attorneys, and the prying eyes of muckrakers. Just another diocesan payoff further protect monsters from exposure, prosecution, and punishment. Unfortunately, we'll never get the answer to the question that's plagued me the entire time I've been working on this investigation. Why were Weldon and three successive bishops so steadfast in their protection of Richard Levine? The theory has always been that the bishops were naively trying to protect the reputation of the church. I'm not so sure. Levine's many crimes were so heinous that the church's reputation would have probably fared better had the bishop made an example of the suspected murderer and convicted molester. Yet they protected him and paid him a salary and benefits for more than a decade following his guilty plea on child rape charges. That level of protection leads me to suspect Levine has some dirt on Bishop Weldon. After all, the men knew each other as far back as 1965, when Levine was ordained by Weldon. Levine claimed that, six months later, he told Weldon about climbing a ladder to spy into a second-floor window of the Sacred Heart Rectory in East Hampton. That's where, according to Levine, he witnessed his then-pastor, Father John Klokoka, molesting several altar boys on the bed. Then, a couple years later, in 1968, when the accusations started to trickle in about Levine's bad behavior at St. Catherine's, Weldon's response was to transfer him to another parish, St. Mary's in East Springfield, and not take any disciplinary action. Then he transferred Levine again, briefly to a parish in Palmer, then on to Shelburne Falls, where Levine was eventually elevated to pastor and became the boss of three parishes. All the while, with each transfer and promotion, Bishop Weldon did so, knowing Levine had been credibly accused of molesting many boys in 16 acres, including Danny Croto's older brothers. And the bishop knew the priest was the sole suspect in Danny's murder. Apparently, none of this mattered to Weldon. The unanswerable question remains, why? A quick aside about Father Klokoka. Until my reporting in episode 11 revealed Levine's accusation of Klokoka, that priest had never been publicly named as an alleged child molester. Then, a colleague discovered via deep Googling another allegation, this one buried in the archives of a Victims of Child Molesting Priest support group. In 2016, a man accused Klokoka of sexually abusing him as a teenager at a parish in Greenfield, Mass. in the early 1960s, which was Klokoka's assignment just prior to becoming pastor of Sacred Heart. Apparently, this victim did not pursue the matter with the Springfield Diocese. There probably aren't any secret files on Klokoka, because Bishop Weldon likely destroyed them when Klokoka kicked the bucket in 1974. Weldon, who celebrated the priest's funeral mass, was said to have destroyed the secret files of priests who died during his reign. As we've noted several times this season, the secret records for living priests were carefully maintained until Weldon's death. Then, his assistant, the credibly accused child molester Monsignor Thomas Welch, reportedly destroyed the rest of the files. Due to this widespread records destruction, we'll never know the true depth of priestly crimes and the scope of the victimhood. How many more clerical criminals, like Klokoka, raped or abused children and completely escaped justice? 
We've discussed many evil people this season, but only a handful of heroes. I've told you about priests like Father James Scahill, who offered solace to victims, withheld the 6% bishop's tax, and then blew the whistle on the record's destruction. And Father Bruce Teague, who was ostracized for trying to prevent Levine from hanging around his amorous parish and hearing kids' confessions. And the priest I called Father Gerald Shea, who encouraged Jack Ballard to seek help in dealing with the damage from his abuse by Father X. The victims who came forward are also heroes in an era where such allegations would be difficult to discuss with their parents, let alone the cops, many male victims of sexual abuse remain silent due to shame, fear, and guilt. So I'm very thankful that Mark Baxter and his sister and all the others who met with police found the courage to reveal the horrors perpetrated by these priestly abusers. Also courageous was the fellow I called David Stanley, who Father X tried to rape in 1976 under the guise of providing, quote, grief therapy. His teenage years were horrible. Then, after a suicide attempt, he was blessed with a tearful reunion with his parents. Years later, as a 20-something law school graduate, David wrote strongly worded letters and put persistent pressure on Bishop Marshall, forcing the diocese to remove Father X from the priesthood. And then there are the lawyers. Many hundreds, if not thousands of attorneys across the U.S. have challenged the powerful Catholic institution seeking justice for victims. After lengthy battles, these strident lawyers have often won, despite lies and cover-ups by church officials. Over $3 billion in settlements have been paid out. I repeat, the Catholic Church in the U.S. has paid out over $3 billion to the victims of its child-molesting priests, and that sum continues to grow daily. In Western Mass, there's one of those heroic lawyers, John Stobierski, who practices law in the city of Greenfield. He isn't currently taking cases against the church, but attorney Stobierski has represented over 100 victims of Springfield's child molesting priests. He was also involved in the massive insurance lawsuit when the diocese sued its liability insurers for refusing to pay the court settlements. And Stobierski was instrumental in getting the case file of Danny Croto's murder and other incriminating diocesan documents made public. But most important, in my view, was the legal service he provided his clients because, as is obvious by now, the best way to hold the diocese accountable for the evil actions of their priest is to come out swinging, then grab him by the wallet. Stobierski declined to participate in the making of this podcast, and I don't blame him. He told me that revisiting the decade and a half of his life when he took on the church would require too much energy, and it would bring back the sadness and anger as well. He said he has a, quote, room full of files, unquote, from the cases connected to the evil cabal in Western Mass. Perhaps someday, he said, he'll write a book about the whole terrible saga. Or not, he's still not sure. And I totally get it. A year ago, I would have loved to have access to his files, many of which, by a fluke of the courts, exist only in his collection as copies of the original documents still hidden away in church archives. But now, as I bring this investigation to a close, I have zero interest in acquiring more knowledge about this sordid scandal. I want to stop thinking about these priests and their victims and the cover-ups and deaths and suicides and sorrow. 
There's no way I'm going to forget these stories, but I'm hoping I can stop obsessing over them every day because that hasn't been good for my mental health. So I understand why Stobierski doesn't want to take a walk with me down memory lane. Still, it's a loss, personally, because I'm a big fan of his work and would have loved to get some answers and insight about his experience taking on the church. The dude is an amazing lawyer. I was able to get my hands on a transcript of his deposition of disgraced child-molesting Bishop Thomas Dupre. I'm not going to post that document in the show notes because it would be extremely difficult to redact all the victims' names and identifying details. But Stobierski's interrogation of Dupre was masterful. That's despite the fact that the then 77-year-old Dupre refused to answer any of Stobierski's questions. Instead, the disgraced bishop pleaded the fifth, so to speak, to avoid self-incrimination over 400 times, which is a rarity in civil depositions. But obviously, the former bishop had a lot to hide. Stobierski's fierce line of questioning of Dupre has helped guide me throughout this investigation. I've read the Dupre deposition many times and gleaned a ton of facts and leads. Also of huge assistance was reading the court documents connected to Stobierski's cases that went to trial. They were basically step-by-step demonstrations of his legal tactics, and the details he revealed helped me understand the depth of the scandal of the child-molesting priests of the Springfield Diocese. One case in particular, whose details are far too complicated to discuss here, contains certain top-secret memos that proved, beyond a doubt, that Dupre and many others, despite their official denial, knew about the record's destruction and other cover-ups. I've put those memos in the show notes, some being published for the first time ever. Unfortunately, Stobierski didn't uncover those secret memos until the late aughts. From then onward, he was able to brandish the proof whenever needed, and lawyers for the diocese knew it. However, if those same memos had been discovered prior to the settlements in 2004 and 2006, the outcome of the Springfield scandal could have been very different. Because, under Massachusetts civil law, knowingly destroying evidence can enable a judge to award major damages. If Stobierski and other lawyers had been armed with those secret memos, those smoking guns, the court judgments could have bled the church dry, possibly even forcing the Springfield Diocese to declare bankruptcy, like the Diocese of Milwaukee, Tucson, San Diego, and 15 other American dioceses that went broke because of child-molesting priests. Ever since my awakening as an atheist back when I was a teenager, I've struggled to understand why people, good and smart people, still embrace Catholicism. Some, I'm told, find solace and comfort in the familiar ceremonies and rituals. For others, it's apparently about the community and the family and the joy of friendships and God's love. And there are the political Catholics who follow Jesus' liberation theology in the quest for freedom from oppression for the masses, working with the poor and sick, laboring with love, performing countless acts of charity and mercy. For me, though, all that good stuff is negated by the widespread sex abuse scandal, plus the institutional church's archaic view on social issues makes it even tougher to stomach any preaching by priests, bishops, or the Pope. From abortion and birth control to gay and lesbian rights and marriage, not to mention the church's generally poor treatment of women and divorced Catholics, it's obvious the church is woefully out of touch. 
And since the institutional church moves slower than molasses on a cold winter's day, dramatic change from Rome is highly unlikely. However, some lay Catholics aren't waiting for the Vatican, according to a friend of mine who is very intelligent and a devout Catholic in the years since the news broke about child-molesting priests and cover-ups. Church officials have been distracted by lawsuits and settlements, budget shortfalls, and the clergy shortage, which left gaps in the leadership structure of local churches. In some cases, the lay community took control of their parishes, running the show while the diocese honchos were sidetracked by legal issues. Also, according to my friend, Due to the sordid truths about their church and the priesthood, many Catholics no longer believe the parish priest is a special representative of God in heaven above. The supposed holiness of most priests today, my friend said, is not taken seriously. They're viewed more as doddering functionaries who perform the sacraments and celebrate the Mass. That's it. Priests and pastors have been disempowered by the parish councils, at least in some parishes, who now run the show and control the checkbook. So perhaps the times are changing, hopefully. Word on the street is that many parents in Springfield don't let their kids spend any time alone with priests, and most parents don't want their kids to enter religious life. Modern moms and dads want their kids to experience the joy of romantic love and sex and to find a special partner in life. These days, most Catholics view the priesthood as a creepy dead end, an unnatural path to a lonely old age. Unfortunately, the wave of change among the laity hasn't yet reached the hierarchy above the parish level. Dioceses are still run by bishops and monsignors shrouded in secrecy, protected by a holy aura, living in denial, trying to protect their assets and preserve an antiquated way of life and tax-free privilege. And the Vatican remains distant and unresponsive, bedazzled in gold and jewels, issuing edicts and judgments, floating above the mortals, ignoring the sins and crimes committed by their men of the cloth. A so-called satanic panic hit the United States in the 1980s and 1990s. That's when thousands of people were arrested as a result of allegations made by children across the country. The allegations seem so ludicrous today, it's hard to believe cops and DAs, and the media could repeat them with a straight face. This wave of, quote, satanic ritual abuse focused mostly on daycare and preschool workers who were accused of using children for unspeakable sex acts. These caregivers were often said to have sacrificed babies, drank their blood, and forced the children to bury the dead infants in mass graves. The children also frequently reported that babies were buried alive. Cannibalism was a common accusation, as were stories that Satanists would kill large animals within the daycare center and butcher them in front of the kids to demonstrate what would happen to them and their families if they told anyone about the horrific sex abuse. We now know that all of these claims were bogus, with zero physical proof of any of the allegations. Turns out, for some ungodly reason, the children were encouraged by therapists, cops, DAs, social workers, and the religious right to spread horrible lies. In reality, there have only been a handful of actual cases in the U.S. unconnected to daycare centers where child molesters claim to be Satanists to scare children in order to make molestation easier. And there's no evidence of those victims being used in rituals. And yet, many of those accused during the Satanic Panic 
went to jail. Also, unbelievably, some remain imprisoned to this day. At the same time, the media and law enforcement fanned the flames of fear-mongering about an evil religious group raping children, thousands of American Catholic priests were molesting thousands of altar boys and Catholic school kids. The vast majority of those priests were never arrested or punished for ruining the lives of so many. Instead, most of those bastards publicly appeared pious preaching the gospel in homily, able to retire and die in peace without their heinous crimes being revealed. In Springfield, the priesthood was a refuge for monsters who practiced perverted rites and rituals all while murdering the souls and sometimes the bodies of the young and innocent. Without going into the gory details, there were many instances where priests invoked the name of the Lord to justify the sex acts, telling victims they were chosen by God for a special sort of love. In some cases, the priests also demanded the victims confess their sins to their abuser. There were other abuses, too obscene to repeat here, involving Catholic ceremonies as the crux of the molestation. And while we've been focusing on the lone wolf abusers, There were rings of pedophile priests in Springfield and in Worcester and in Boston who shared victims and grooming techniques. In light of this evidence, it seems reasonable to regard the American Catholic priesthood from at least the 1950s through the early 2000s as a sex cult, which is pretty weird since all priests are supposed to be chaste and celibate in order to do his job properly A priest needs to be untainted by lust, which is among the most basic biological urges. A quick primer on the vow of celibacy. First of all, Jesus and the Bible didn't say anything about priests being celibate and unmarried. In fact, most apostles and disciples had wives and families, and there are many rumors in the forgotten Gospels proclaiming that Jesus himself had taken a bride. Secondly, celibacy and the no-marriage rule came about because of real estate law. That's right, celibacy was added to Catholic teaching about a thousand years ago as a legal maneuver to prevent the sons of medieval priests from inheriting church property. While church apologists try to ascribe a higher and purer meaning to celibacy, the no-sex edict was just a tactic handed down by a greedy pope to protect the Vatican's ever-growing wealth. Now, back to the sex cult stuff. Even the clergy who aren't child-molesting priests are immersed in sex. They've been ordered not to have sex, but they have to talk and hear about sex all the time. The confessional booth is a hotbed of sex talk. Couples who decide to get married in the church have to take so-called pre-canna classes from the parish pastor, during which the church's sex rules for married folk are explained. Priests also commonly preach against abortion, condoms, masturbating, oral sex, anal sex, group sex, etc. In fact, as far as the Catholic priest is concerned, sex is for procreation only, with the goal of creating other Catholic souls on this planet. And yet, Despite all the sex-related responsibilities of the job, priests are given almost no training in the seminary on how to cope with celibacy and their natural sexual urges, let alone understand and counsel those with modern marriage troubles, sexual or otherwise. No surprise a certain percentage of priests, many already psychologically damaged before taking their sacred vows, would turn out depraved and dysfunctional, prone to perversions and sick desires. And it's not just children. Historically, women have also been frequent victims of priestly abuse. In fact, church observers predict that Africa will be ground zero for the next church sex crisis due to an epidemic of Catholic nuns being raped and even enslaved by patriarchal parish priests. 
This world is cursed with so much evil beyond our control and our understanding, and that is so friggin' depressing to admit. Weighed down by dark truth, all we can do is carry on, because, for me at least, there is no escape. I'll be haunted until my dying day by the sad stories I've shared with you this season. As we've seen many times throughout this investigation of Springfield's Diocese of Devils, these priestly sociopaths frequently targeted boys from families plagued with financial problems, marital discord, and other troubles. These child-molesting priests often use their role as confessor and spiritual leader to take advantage of a family's misfortune, which makes me think of my parents. Both are long dead, but I wish I could thank them for providing my siblings and I with a safe and stable childhood, untouched by the demons lurking in the shadowy and dark corners of their holy church. Some listeners, by the way, have asked why I gave Father X a pseudonym while naming Richard Levine. First of all, Levine was convicted pleading guilty to child rape in 1992. Plus, he's been publicly considered the prime suspect in Danny's murder for a long time. X, on the other hand, was never charged in criminal court. More importantly, though, he and his extended family are all victims of the child-raping patriarch of the clan. The seven-foot-tall Mr. X that evil son of a bitch, will haunt this family forever. And naming Father X publicly won't make their struggle any easier. On a warm and sunny day last February, my wife Sweetgrass and I went to the place on the south side of the Chicopee River where Danny Crodo was murdered on April 14, 1972. That's the rumble of the traffic on the General Robinson Bridge above. To get to the spot required climbing down a steep embankment that wasn't there when I was a kid. Back then, a car-wide path led to this location. In the years since Danny's death, the state altered the route of East Main Street and built the embankment, eliminating easy access to the scene of the crime. The ground was muddy and wet. We're standing underneath the bridge, probably 20 feet from where Danny was murdered, and it's just trash and gravel, a shovel, water bottles, pieces of plastic, soda cans, beer bottles water dripping down from the General Robinson Bridge overhead. We continued walking towards the exact location where, according to the police report, the 13-year-old was brutally attacked. The murderer struck the boy's head with a rock at least four or five times until he was unconscious. Then the killer dragged Danny's body to the water's edge and threw him into the Chicopee River, hoping the fast current would carry the child's body away from the murder scene. This rock that would be uh, what bones. It looks like here or something, right? 
That's crazy. There are bones down here. Deer bones, almost atop the sacred spot where Danny was murdered. We continued walking towards the riverbank, fighting back tears, following the same 83-foot-long trek that murderer took so many years before. We stopped by one of the bridge's main supports, the one nearest the water's edge. We had brought a couple of flowers and a note for Danny. I wonder if we should take that flower and stick it in up there. The drain pipe. So I wedged the larger flower behind the pipe and gave Sweetgrass the other flower. Then we headed to the riverbank. Coming out into the sunshine underneath here, there's a sapling that's on the side of the water. I'm gonna wrap the around it. I approached the young tree growing on the river bank, not far from the spot where Danny's lifeless body had been discovered floating. In my hands was a spool of blue ribbon. Many years ago, my friend Cat. Danny's youngest sister, started using blue ribbon as a symbol in memory of her Danny and all the victims of evil priests everywhere. Sweetgrass tossed the second flower into the flowing river. It spirited the blossom away as I wrapped the blue ribbon around the sapling's trunk. It didn't take long, and then it was time to leave. We didn't want to linger at this sad, forsaken place where a devil murdered a sweet, innocent boy, a freckle-faced boy with a quick laugh and grin who loved to fish and played peekaboo with babies. Beloved by his family and friends, a boy, forever 13, named Danny Croto, who will always be missed and never forgotten. This season of Devils and Dirtbags is dedicated to the memory of Danny and the many other victims of the child-molesting priests of the Diocese of Springfield, Massachusetts. If you or someone you love has been abused by a Catholic priest, or any authority figure for that matter, first, please seek help for the victim's trauma, then find a good lawyer. Devils and Dirtbags is written and produced by me, Crash Berry. Thanks to Chris Busby of MainerNews.com and Brian Fitzgerald for editorial assistance. Thanks to Dave Gutter for the theme song. Thanks to my sweet wife, Sweetgrass, for putting up with me and for the musical interludes. Thanks to Tommy Shea, Brian Melly. Bill Zajac, and Stephanie Barry, all reporters at one time or another at the Springfield Republican, thanks to them for their coverage of the child-molesting priests of Springfield. And thanks to Dan Barry, a reporter now with the New York Times, but back in the 1980s, he wrote for the journal Inquirer in Manchester, Connecticut, where he broke this story about a 1970s apocalyptic Catholic doomsday cult with a top-secret sperm-swallowing ceremony led by a former deli clerk 
who believed he was Jesus's twin brother. And thank you for listening. Be sure to visit devilsanddirtbags.com for show notes, top secret memos, and to learn about my books, my other journalism, and movie, or to send me an email. Next season on Devils and Dirtbags. When I was a young man, in my early 20s, I lived and worked on Matinicus, Maine's most remote inhabited island, located in the center of the richest lobster grounds in the world. I found that despite its isolation, Matinicus was a microcosm of modern American society, ruled by gossip and slander, rife with substance abuse and marital discord. Over time, the archetypes revealed themselves, the angel, the hero, the loner, the drunk, the cheater, the molester, the abuser, the thief, the suicide, and the killer. Two years living in a fish shack and working as a stern man on a lobster boat didn't make me an expert on Matinicus, but it was a long enough immersion for me to recognize the distinctive nature of the island, to see beyond the myth and hype, to study a unique society filtered through a thick lens of drugs, youth, and hard work. Season two of Devils and Dirtbags is called Tough Island. (laughs) 